Hey, what's going on? Welcome into Tuesday's R for Talking. This is your host, Nathan Brown, and you are listening to a weekly podcast from Mosaic Church in Austin, Texas. This week, I've got a special guest for you. It's Adam Mabry. Adam pastors Aletheia Church in Boston, which is a part of our Every Nation family. And Adam has just released last week a new book called Stop Taking Sides. It's a fantastic book that explores all of the tensions I shouldn't say y'all, explores a lot of the tensions that we as Christians have to navigate to both remain in unity, remain faithful to the gospel, and love one another well. So without any further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Adam. Here we go. And here we are on Tuesday's R for Talking with Adam Mabry. Adam, we're so glad to have you on the podcast today. Man, how are you? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. We are excited that you're here. Of course, you're a pastor in the Every Nation community of churches. If you would, just tell us a little bit more about yourself, your church, your family. We'd love to just get to know who we're going to be talking to today. Well, my name's Adam, and I'm the, uh, I'm the lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston. We've, uh, we've been here for about a decade. Uh, moved here from Scotland. Uh, my wife and I are originally from Florida. We had a pretty unexpected call in the ministry uh, some 16 or so years ago and moved to the UK and helped uh, helped plant a couple of churches there and do some campus ministry and find our sea legs, as it were, and uh, got bitten by the bug and moved over here uh, to do the same thing. So uh, so after our time in the UK was done, we said, well, what's a really old city uh, where people are, are also unlikely to, uh, to think Christianity is a good idea? Cool, we'll, we'll go there. And so we did. Um, and... Uh, so we planted our church, Aletheia. Aletheia is the uh, the Greek word for truth, because at the time I thought it was pretty snazzy to name your church a Greek word. And I didn't anticipate how often we'd get confused with a, a Greek Orthodox church, but my answer is usually just, uh, hey, man, if that helps you show up, yeah, we're, we're Orthodox, whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've got we've got four kids, um, two daughters and two sons. My daughters are 15 and 13, and my sons are 10 and 7. And uh, I'm married to a wonderful woman named Hope, and we were high school sweethearts, and uh, she still likes me. So that's cool. And uh, yeah, I'm a perpetual student. I like to write stuff. And I used to get on airplanes and talk to people. And now I get on my computer and talk to people. <laughs> well, that is uh, the world has definitely shifted in the last few months. And I'm sure it's changed as much for you as it has for anybody else. So time in Scotland. I'm a little bit jealous, Adam. I, I have some 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 roots, some heritage in Scotland, and I've always wanted to go, but I, I have not. So that's a bucket list place for me, for sure. T- tell me, what was the thing that you liked the most and disliked the most about mm. your time in Scotland? I loved learning how to become more self-aware. When you when you leave America, um, you begin to think of yourself as an American. So, I mean, we in America, we, we think of ourselves as an American. Well, I'm sorry, uh, in, in Texas, where you are, you guys think of yourselves as Texan. And then American, but the rest of us probably go America first. Um, I'm glad you understand but, uh, that. <laughs> I, I do, I do. No, I don't understand it. I'm, I'm just aware of it. I don't understand it. <laughs> um, the weirdest thing that happened to me in Scotland was uh, I, I knew someone who uh, who was from Texas, and uh, they, uh, I, I think he and his wife were there for for doing a PhD. And when she gave birth, she brought a, a Ziploc bag of dirt from Texas, and and she sat upon that bag in the hospital. So that her child would be born on Texas soil, and I, th- there's nothing normal about that. Um, <laughs> oh my so gosh, that is that's, that's pretty a, extreme. That's pretty extreme. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but but you know, coming coming to the UK, I I felt like I began to understand all the wonderful things about being American and all the not so wonderful things. And uh, so I think one of the one of the cool things that it did was help me and my wife become a bit more self aware and uh, self aware of our calling too. Um, I absolutely adore the people, the weather. For a kid from Florida, I mean, it rains 300 days a year there, so the weather is uh, soul destroying. But on those uh, on those two months where it's nice, it's really the prettiest place in the world. Um, so, man, it was an amazing experience, and made a bunch of mistakes, and was allowed to still continue in ministry, and it was cool. Well, I hope to get over there at some point in time for some some other kinds of reasons, just to to see where some of my people hail from. I'm also a bit of a golf fanatic. Of course, that's the home of golf over there, yeah, and yes. some places yes. that you just have to go play. I think at some point, got to go to St. Andrews and play the old course. That's a thing you got to do. Did you ever have the opportunity to do that while you're there? Are you a golfer? Um, I'm not a golfer. My dad is, and so we actually I took him to uh, 
St. Andrews and, and we went and watched the British Open when it was in Carnoustie together and oh, wow. uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was it was great. It was uh, it was fun to watch him nerd out about all that stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I would probably yeah. do much of the same. Definitely jealous of that experience. So you guys planted a church there in the Boston area and how has that been going? I mean, I, I think about there's probably a lot of smart people around there. Not that there aren't here in Austin, of course, but it seems yeah. like sort of a seat of intellectualism and obviously you're a bright individual, but talk to us a little bit about what that's been like for you. Yeah, I mean, there are some universities here. Uh, there are dozens of them, actually. Um, uh, our our first church plant uh, was, and still is, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, about half a mile between Harvard and MIT, kind of right on the, the road that connects us to called Mass Ave or Massachusetts Avenue. And then our, our second location we planted in downtown Boston. And then a third one we planted in uh, Providence, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, actually just just bought them a building, which is really cool. Um, and then the fourth and very unplanned location was uh, is, is online. I, I never wanted to have an online church. I never dreamed I would want to do such thing. And uh, now I have, a, now we've recently, like many churches, have had to figure out how to get online. Um, but for us, it's actually been a, a whole unexpected way to engage people who don't know Jesus. And it's been a huge gift. And so, you know, there have been some, uh, some big wins. And some, you know, some setbacks too, as as there are with any any new work. But uh, it, it's been great. Yes, there are smart people or people who fancy themselves smart. There is no correlation whatsoever between intelligence and wisdom, though. And so, you know, I mean, the, the folks here still need Jesus, and the gospel still works. And so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, uh, it's been a wonderful experience. I, I kind of like to say I, I think I'm purpose built for this place. I think if I'd been sent somewhere else, I, I might not be as effective. <laughs> So you you guys have been online like everybody else. Um, I'm assuming you did not grow up dreaming about being a televangelist, but here you are. Yeah, here I am, uh, knowing a lot about video and lighting and editing and yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys have an internal team that handles all that for you, or have you had to outsource any of that stuff? No, or? no, we didn't because didn't ever. I mean, if you'd come to our church a church gathering uh, the week before COVID hit, you'd have found a very unproduced. You know, I mean, it, it like it hit the bar of excellence that it needed to hit, but it was like we don't own any like lights. I mean, we we do like a little bit to sort of like see the stage, but there's nothing like you know fancy. There, and there's no hazers. There's certainly was no. There was like a cruddy camera in the back for the video podcast, um, but it was that was always enough. So we never had like the internal team. Uh, so it was me and another guy, and uh, the only reason I know how to do anything with video is because I used to do stuff like that in Scotland, and thankfully uh, uh, Adobe Premiere hadn't changed all that much. And so, uh, yeah, man, we found ourselves uh, kind of busting it, and then yeah, we did outsource some editing and stuff to others. And you know, by God's grace, we've been figuring it out, and God's been helping us. So that's great. Now, are you guys doing any in-person services now, or are you still online yeah. only? Or yeah, yeah, our physical locations are back. It's like a in the room you're allowed to have something like you know half capacity plus six foot social distancing everyone's got to wear a mask you know and so it's changed the liturgy of kind of what we do but it's also been sort of a nice i mean there's plenty to, to complain about you know uh, and, and plenty to be worried about you know how much how much any government should be able to tell a church what to do but aside from those things uh I, we've sort of taken it as a gift and uh, to to rethink like well why do we do every part of what we do you know let's let's put that back on the whiteboard and figure it out you know, why this many songs? Why in this order? Why, you know, because it, it's been a while since we thought about that. Um, and so, you know, like we we can't uh, we can't take communion the way we used to. We can't lay hands on people the way we used to. We can't hug and, you know, that sort of thing. So we've had to rethink some of that. Um, so it's been a cool opportunity for, for creativity on the other side. Um, and even at our limited capacities, uh, you know, we've found our people, I mean, our services are, are you know, filling back up and we're going back to, you know, we're doubling them up and, you know, in our different locations and, you know, it, it, it's, it's getting there. Um, uh, but we're, we're keeping the online thing too. And, um, yeah, trying to see what the Lord does and like many pastors trying to, trying to figure it out. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we are definitely in that same boat. We were planning to open the first weekend in July, but the week hmm. before that, really kind of two weeks before that here in Austin, we experienced a significant spike in COVID outbreaks. Thankfully, yeah. people did sort of self-police and regulate, and so our numbers have come back down significantly. And we just announced on Sunday that we're going to reopen at the end of this month on September 27th. So well, that's great, man. That uh, will be our first uh, service since the first Sunday in March, so quite a long time. Adam, this weekend, I spent uh, a good bit of my time actually making my way through your new book called Stop Taking 
taking sides. And um, just to tell you, man, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, there was a lot that I enjoyed about it. And uh, I definitely want to get into it. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the impetus behind it. Like, when did you start writing this? When did you realize this is something you really needed to do or were being called to do? I'd love to just hear the back backstory on the process. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny for me to write a book like this. It's sort of like my last book on rest. Everyone's like, you? Um, that's sort of been the same reaction again, because I obviously, and you know, I, I, if anyone in your audience has ever heard me preach, like I, I preach pretty strong, pretty, you know, with an edge, I, I, I say things clearly, uh, if you want to put it in a nice way, um, which can sound really, um, you know, like I would be the kind of person who's very, um, you know, uh, partial to one side or another partisan. Um, and I definitely used to be in my, in my younger years, but, um, uh, Stop Taking Sides is sort of the right title for this book uh, because I'm, I'm laying out in the book nine different areas where partisanship or side taking is, is the wrong thing. It's not what the Bible is asking us to do. That doesn't mean that there's never a time to take sides, obviously. Like there are, in fact, in the intro, uh, you know, there's um, quite a few examples I give of like places where the Bible is not, you know, taking two things and putting them in tension. It's saying something really clearly. Like there's no side to take on does God exist or not you know, for a follower of Jesus, like, yes, that's the side. Um, you know, it is Christ, you know, the son of God is God Trinitarian, things like this. Um, however, we, we tend to treat, and we as in Christians tend to treat every matter of doctrine as if it were that clear. And and the Bible simply says that, that it's not. And in fact, Jesus says that it's not. Jesus says that, you know, there are weightier matters of the law, uh, things that are more um, significant and, um, and, and clear. And, um, and God's a genius. And he, and he, built the Bible that way, right? He's not, he didn't accidentally like forget to clarify something. Um, and so the, the further I've gone in my own studies theologically and the further I've gone in my postgraduate stuff and the more preaching that I've done, the more I've realized that it, there are, there are really important times to clearly take a side, but those times seem to be far fewer than we think. And when we think we're being all brave, like Martin Luther standing up, you know, in the, in the Diet of Worms saying uh, that, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. What we're actually doing is operating out of a lot of fear and anxiety and not wanting to listen to people who just simply think differently than us. So um, I this became clear to me when I began to live in the world of reformed theology and the world of like the global charismatic Pentecostal movement. These are not movements that tend to get together well. Um, I th- <laughs> there's, like, there's like five of us. Uh, we can get together, you know, in a very small booth in a restaurant and, and talk. And, and, uh, and the more I looked into why the, the less clear it became to me, why <laughs> other than, well, we just don't like them. Cause you know, in the, in the reformed world, the charismatics are snake handling weirdos. And in the charismatic world, you know, those reformed people don't, don't care about, you know, don't care about those, you know, evangelism or those who don't know Jesus, which neither of those things are true at all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, I begin to think, I begin to notice this and then I begin to think about it and go, well, why is that? And then I read my Bible and see these arrangements of texts where God very intentionally is putting one idea next to what seems like it's opposite and not resolving the tension. And so in biblical studies, you not only ask what's the text saying, but what, what's its structure saying? Like, why would an author put it like that? And, um, and that's when I begin to see these things as intentional tensions that God wants us to hold, not problems he necessarily always wants us to solve. Of course, the, the whole book talks about a lot of different types of tensions, but I certainly appreciated some of the theological tension that you drew out of the book and out of the Bible, as you were just discussing. And of course, one of those great examples is is the Trinity, which you spent quite a bit of time on. And I remember our, our lead pastor, Morgan, has taught on this concept of remaining in the tension uh, many, many times. And one, one of his things that, that he has shared is that there are some tensions that if you resolve them, they may they may seem contradictions, but if you resolve them, you actually just become a heretic. Um, <laughs> you know, which is if you resolve the tension of the Trinity, if you become uh, so, someone who looks at modalism or things along those lines, you put yourself in a problematic place. Another great example, of course, is Jesus. He's fully God, fully man. Solve that one. Congratulations, you're a heretic. Um, and so uh, there there's some tensions that that we do just have to to hold on to. And 
And, and again, I, I really enjoyed the book. Adam, I don't know if you've, you probably have thought about this. I don't think you talked about it in your book, but one of the things that the, I'm, a, I'm a pictures guy and an image guy. And so when I think about the value of tension, I always think about it like a suspension bridge and the way that tension is really needed on both ends of that bridge in order to hold it up. And I think that our, our lives as Christians are designed, and we as the body are designed to be like those different cables on those suspension bridges that hold up the pathway to the gospel. And if we all just kind of got on one side of that bridge, well, we know what happens to the other side. And I think another thing that, that you know, and I, there's a lot of people that I want to share your book with because I have a lot of people in my life that are prophetic. And when I say prophetic, I don't necessarily mean prophetic like Pastor Jim LaFoon, who really functions in the office of prophecy, but people who sort of innately and even divinely see the world as it ought to be. And so there's this pressing desire to to see the way they, they believe that the world should be to happen immediately. And those people can find themselves in frustrating situations because things aren't the way they ought to be. And yet we need them holding those points of tension to the way things ought to be, even if we all know we're never going to actually arrive there. But if we didn't have them, if we didn't have them holding on, it's like the end of the bridge, you know, you start cutting those cables uh, on one side or the other and you have a problem. Um, so kind of getting back to, to your book, I'd love to hear a little more behind the scenes. I mean, you talked about your story as a, as a high schooler, reading John Piper and not reading him for a while and then reading him. What was that really like on an emotional level for you as you started to, to press in to those kinds of things within the church? Well, I mean, I think I, there are two answers. On an emotional level, when I started to press into the Bible, um, well, it's always disconcerting to find out when you're wrong. Um, and I, I, I felt that I had a picture of God that wasn't the right picture. And so for me, it was, uh, you know, unsettling um, as well. It should be, you know, the idea that uh, church should never be unsettling or we should be made to feel comfortable and never challenged. Um, uh, this anathema to anything uh, the way like Jesus taught us. Um, and so I, I felt like I was um, being more accurately introduced to God uh, so, so that's what it was like for me. And that's what actually discovering new things about God always seems like to me. Um, uh, now in, in the church, um, I actually really didn't find that this was a, a, a thing about which people fought un, until later. Um, cause I, I was just around people that largely felt this way. Uh, and they were lovely. They, that, uh, that kind of boogeyman of like the, the angry Calvinist or whatever that I, I never met that guy. until I started writing for the gospel coalition and some of those people found out that I was also charismatic and, and then I got emails from them. Oh, which is funny because I also went to like reformed theological seminary, which is filled with reformed people. It's in the name. Um, and they were all lovely. I, I didn't, I didn't ever find these so-called, you know, angry Calvinists until, until later. And so, yeah, I mean, when, when someone, uh, you know, sends you a mean email or, or challenges your, whether or not you're, you know, you've trusted the right deity based on your view of sovereignty or, or even your nuanced understanding of sovereignty. Uh, yeah, that's very, and that'll put you on the back foot and make you very defensive. And I've been defensive before about it. Um, very, very much so. And been, you know, kind of the militant, uh, you know, hardline, you know, this is true. I, and what I, what I lacked was a, um, ability to understand that there are things that are matters of first importance in the scriptures and very obviously true and central to salvation. And there are matters that are less so, um, the theologian, um, Gary Brashears has his 40s, uh, die, divide, debate, decide. That's one way to think about it. Like there are things that you should be willing to die for. Uh, and hopefully those things are the same things that a Catholic priest or an Orthodox bishop would also be willing to die for. Um, and then there are the reasons that you're neither of those things. Like there are reasons I'm not Catholic. You divide over those. And then there's things you debate about. And then there are things you sort of decide because they're just the biblical evidence about them is very unclear. You know? uh, so for, for me, lear learning that level of nuance was a matter of being more faithful to the scriptures. Uh, and sometimes uh, being less welcomed around other people.
Yeah, I, um, I certainly have had experience with people on both sides of sort of the soteriology divide that won't work with people who don't see things the way that they see them. And so even at our church in Mosaic and part of our membership process uh, in our foundations classes, we talk about this this very thing and that we have pastors on our team who land on different sides of that divide. And yet we are very willing to lock shields together, you know, for the purpose of the gospel. Yeah, it's um, a lot in the in the church right now you hear a lot of christians talk about you know and, and i say it too you know we, i really don't like cancel culture uh, I don't, i'm very grateful that god didn't cancel me uh but we sort of invented it we protestants um and so we can't complain about it too much because we treat one another as ritually impure if we don't you know have and we've been doing this for hundreds of years well oh you you know you have a different view of the eucharist than me or you have a different view of, of sovereignty than me and, and really like if you look at it historically the space between a modern-day Arminian and a Calvinist is a lot closer than, say, it was between Augustine and Pelagius, right? Uh, and and so we're, we're talking about a, a narrower space doctrinally than, than has existed uh, historically. And yet uh, we imagine that, um, that this somehow makes you, like, like, if I come near you, I'll be, I'll be contaminated by you, which is the way the world treats its, um, you know, it, it, it's fellows, you know, I, I th- this should not be so among us. Uh, and yet it is. And it's, I think, I think it's grievous to God. Well, I agree with you. And I think it is part of our testimony to be able to do these things well. And so I appreciate, you know, that the, the thrust of your book seems to be to help Christians to just, Hey, can we just be Christians? And can we do things well and love each other in spite of our differences? Um, and of course I, I that's probably never been harder, at least in my lifetime. I'm 41 years old, um, and I've grown up in the church, and I can't, I can't recall a time when external things had such a supreme impact on the internal relationships of the church. And of course, I'm talking about our current political, you know, nightmare <laughs> that we're all living through and 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 working on. You share a really interesting story at the beginning of the book, and you conclude it at the end of the book. Adam, how, how often do you run into those kinds of situations where people in your church hear you say something, and you're getting those simultaneous critiques from you know various sides of the same issue? All the time. All the time. Every single week, almost. Um, because. Uh, yeah, we've been trained to listen for keywords like shibboleths. Um, and if you, you know, it's like, it, it, it's almost like everybody wants to think like, really, I'm on the right, or really, I'm on the left, or really, you know, I'm really, I'm, uh, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And, and, uh, and I'm just not. And, uh, and I mostly refuse to use the shibboleths of, you know, the kind of the modern woke social justice crew or the new right or the, you know, the alt-right or the QAnons or the like, I don't even know, like all these different words that they all kind of invent that I'm now supposed to use as a Christian to show that I'm really doing the, the work of social justice or doing the work of conserving, you know, the nation or doing the work of whatever. And, and to me, it's just the Galatian heresy repackaged over and over again. People want me as a Christian pastor to do the Jesus thing and... And then the and is the fill in the blank of whatever their political tribe says I should do. And to that, I say, no, no, um, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to show up to every fight you're invited to. And, uh, and I simply refuse as a matter of like Christian faithfulness, I refuse to, um, start using words that aren't in my Bible and demanding people who follow Jesus do things that Christ doesn't demand of them. Um, I'm not going to do it on the right and I'm not going to do it on the left and I'm not going to do it uh, for uh, a whole set of other issues. I'm not going to do it for, uh, you know, soteriology and I'm not going to do it for uh, any other pet doctrine. And uh, yeah, that really frustrates people and I get called all kinds of names for it, but that's okay. I'm sure he do. We, uh, we, we laugh sometimes and, you know, probably laugh in the same way that you talk about laughing over that in the, in, in the book. But uh, when you get critiques from, from people on multiple sides of the same issue in a weird way, sometimes that feels like a indication that you're doing it right. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're just coalition building on one side or the other, especially around things that are 
sort of human problems, which of course Jesus has answers for, but, uh, but with human problems, I do think you, you, you have to look and go, wow, did I just slide into a ditch? Um, if you're only getting praise from one side of an issue, what do you say to that? Well, I think even here we must be careful because I found pride in my own heart creeping up for, you know, being the guy who's attacked on both sides. So pride is this chimera and it will, it will, it's, it's like a parasite and it will glom on to whatever virtue uh, happens to be present and turn it into a vice. So, um, you know, it'll glom on to the person who's, you know, really deep in their heart thinks, um, you know, more conservatively or, or with more progressive tendencies or more whatever. And, uh, and turn all that into self-righteousness or turn, you know, in my heart, it, it can turn into, you know, it can turn into this weird martyr syndrome and some other pastors, you know, probably struggle with that too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, the measure of doing it right probably isn't if we're getting complaints in stereo. I used to think that way. Um, there are times when the left is more correct than the right. And there are times when the right is more correct than the left. And there are times when Presbyterians got it better than bad. And there are more times when, you know, there are times when Pentecostals got it right and, you know, and the, you know, and whomever has it wrong. So we, we must be careful in the context that we're in, I think, to press harder into the Bible. And, and that's, that is the measure of getting it right. So, mm-hmm. so there are times, you know, when, you know, we need to, to be able to stand up and say, hey, you shouldn't talk like that. Or, you know, to, to our political moment, like it is wrong, in fact, for uh, for our you know, fellow citizens who happen to be black to get shot by the people charged with protecting them with no trial or, you know, just in, in a, in a completely unfair, like that, that's wrong. That's immoral. That's unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we should be able to say that clearly. And, you know, at, when you say that, people say, well, okay, well, you're on the left or whatever. Like, no, I just, I'm observing a thing that the Bible demands. I observe it is wrong right. for people to be treated this way. Uh, you know, and then we might also, you know, with in, a, in another moment say, well, hey, it, it's wrong for, you know, a, a government that's promised it would never do such a thing to, to tell Christians how they ought or ought not to worship. And they'll say, oh, you're on the right. Like, no, I'm just trying to obey my Bible. And so it, it, it I think really must be it, the only sure guide to this must be the scriptures, which is why you know, the book isn't about. It's not about this Aristotelian golden mean of, you know, kind of getting both sides and hearing them and sort of being this milk toast middle. It's not about that. It's about, it's about doubting that you're always right enough to go back and read your scriptures, you know, and, and let them mess with you. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm, I'm reformed. I find my feet in the reformed tradition and everything the Bible says about about human responsibility messes with me. It messes with me. Well, I think that's supposed to happen, right? Absolutely. Like I think that's supposed to happen. And I hope for someone who's like far more, uh, uh, you know, Arminian or holiness or something in their leaning, you know, Wesleyan reads, reads Ephesians one and, and is messed with by it and doesn't go, well, you know, that's, and doesn't, don't, don't tame it. Don't, don't denude something that the scriptures are saying, just let it mess with you and produce like, enough humility in us to go, yeah, this God's a little bit different than, you know, <laughs> I can't quite get my hands around him. Uh, and, and just be okay with that and be, be okay with the humility that that produces. Um, because right there in that tension, I, I really think is where virtue lives. Um, that's, that's where it's, that's the only place it grows in me. And, and that's honestly where the book has come from. That's well said. Uh, I, I like that you're talking about both taking sides and not taking sides. I take side with scripture and then you allow scripture to hold you in tension. Uh, it feels like a fairly safe place to be. I'll tell you one thing that I've really been sort of struggling with anew and afresh is around the idea of justice um, and what is justice and what is biblical justice because it does feel like that there is a, a pull you know, so- socially on this issue to tick certain number of boxes about a certain number of issues in order to say that you stand for justice. And I have found myself kind of going back again to the Bible saying, okay, let's, 
what what does the Bible inform me that justice is? Um, what are the essential elements of what justice is from a biblical perspective that then I can come back to the conversations that the world is having and apply those things to? And as I'm sure you're aware, when you start to do that, you will find yourself in an enormous amount of tension. Uh, as you think back about the, the the book and as you wrote it and you and you were into some of these areas on politics and the kingdom and you talked about justice, Adam, what are some of the tensions that you hold on to as it relates to the concept of biblical justice? Well, one tension has to do with the way justice orients me toward God and then toward others. So it's largely true. And again, that anytime you make a, a big statement like this, there's going to be exceptions, right? But I'm, sure, so I'm sure. aiming at the bell curve here. It's largely the case that those on who whose politics lean more right tend to care about personal responsibility, personal justice, personal morality. And then those on the left tend to think more socially. And, uh, and, and that's, that's just been my observation of, you know, 16, 17 years in full-time ministry. Um, and the scriptures fuse them, fuse them. Um, now I think they, the scriptures bring an order to them. It, it seems to be the case that the Bible, uh, expects that a society can't be just if its members are not, uh, personally righteous. Um, and so these things must be per- pursued together. Um, and, and when you when you know that, you, you have to immediately begin to doubt all the prognostications of your you know of you know Fox News and MSNBC that if you know if only we could do this that and the other thing everything would be fine. Um, the, the pursuit of justice seems to unsettle lots of my right leaning tendencies and unsettle lots of my left leaning ones, <laughs> and 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 as well it should because we're supposed. To, I mean, being just is about being like God mm-hmm. and that God-likeness being instantiated in the world. And none of us are like God because of sin. So therefore it will be unsettling to us. Um, but I, I find that in, you know, in, in this current moment, uh, you know, there is a higher premium being placed, uh, you know, on having read your, you know, your Ta-Nehisi Coates and your Robin D'Angelo over your, you know, Jeremiah. And that's um, fine if you're not a Christian, uh, but we need to be more familiar with the words of scripture. We just, that's our, that's because we're followers of Jesus. Nothing wrong with reading those authors, but we're meant to read those and every other author uh, and then go back to our community uh, of, of, you know, the church, our spiritual family and go, okay, now how should we think about that? And how should we instantiate that? The same thing with, you know, if, if you're more familiar with your with your Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity quotes than you are with your, you know, with the, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you, you need to repent. Like right. that, that's just the fact. Like it, it's th- those, those are not the same thing. And I think, uh, I think too long in the, especially in the church, especially in the white evangelical church, um, American conservatism and, um, evangelicalism were too close of a bedfellow to, to know that where one stopped and another began. And uh, it's nothing wrong to have, you know, political persuasions and, and to become allied with a party to achieve a certain end. Like that, that's fine. It's what we must do in a pluralistic society. But uh, to become the wholly owned subsidiary of one is wrong. It's just a different kind of Babylonian captivity that we must let go of. So we, we have to become therefore better students of the Bible and, and read it, not just alone and then go blog about it or Facebook rant about it, but read it together and then, like, do what the scriptures say. Submit to our teachers. You know, act lovingly toward one another, and and try to see if we can be a part of that whole "Father, let your kingdom come, let your will be done" thing in our own generation. When I think about these things, one of the tensions that I find myself in, and I'd love to hear you talk about how you resolve this, is that the more we press in to to scripture and allow the scriptures to inform our thinking, at least for me, I feel a strong pull to be more apolitical, to sort of go, I I can't take that side and I can't take that side. And we do talk in those ways and we're talking in that way right now. Uh, But of course, when you go into a voting booth, uh, you you don't have... uh, 
you know, another option. I mean, I suppose I could write you in for president, Adam. Maybe I'll do that. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but in, the, in the words of Emperor Palpatine, I, I'll return power when the crisis is averted. <laughs> <laughs> but when, if you when you do that, and I've done that in the in the past, you know, sort of taking a third option because I'm just not feeling good about you know the the two that actually have a chance to win. In a sense, you're sort of just removing yourself from the equation. And so I wonder yeah. if you could talk to us a little bit about how you process that tension and that pull between apolitical and then participating in the system where you live. Yeah. I prefer the term ambipolitical because um, we already have a politic, right? We have a king, can't vote for him. The one chance we did get to vote for Jesus, we voted for Barabbas. So like we, I, I don't, uh, I don't trust us all that much, us being humans. So the, the Bible doesn't anticipate life in a, in a Republican democracy or you know, a democratic republic, however you want to describe the United States of America, or any Western kind of democratic society. Um, so therefore, it doesn't tell us how to vote all the time. Um, so you know, a good example would be like, okay, we, here we have a president, presidential election uh, coming up. There will be two options on the well. There might be more, but two real options on the ballot. One, uh, either either you know Joe Biden or Donald Trump will will win, presumably. Um, so which one are you going to vote for? And you get one. It's a it's a digital binary zero one. You get one vote for one of these campaigns. And so the factors going into that decision are legion. Well, uh, I live in Massachusetts. Um, there's a really important sense in which. Uh, it doesn't matter <laughs> because my state's going to go blue and has been going blue for, I mean, I think since like the mid 1980s or something. Uh, so, so in one, there's, there's that factor, like, doesn't even matter. There's the second factor of which one of these two campaigns seems to embody the highest chance of the most biblical things being instantiated. All right. There's, there's a question one could ask. Uh, the third one is, um, you know, my own conscience, like what does my own conscience allow me to do? Uh, you know, as I alluded to Martin Luther earlier, he, I believe, said once to go, to go against conscience is neither safe nor wise. Um, you know, there, then there's the the fourth piece of uh, of uh, you know what is the what does the scripture say that our our interaction with our own uh, democratic republic or whatever should should be? And the there have been a lot of different theological answers to that. I mean, from kind of the Minno Simons Amish kind of we're going to be here to the more like uh, you know, Christian dominionist sort of, we're going to take over society, uh, and, and every other thing in between. And so there, are, uh, what I'm trying to say is it can be very complicated, very complicated, um, to be engaged politically. And what we've done is to, is to remove the complexity and say, no, it's not complicated because if you love Jesus, then it's very clear that you should vote for this person or that person. And, um, to do so, I think, is to orient yourself so unlovingly and uncharitably toward your fellow believers um, so th that it that it is to, um, yeah, it, it is to drag the gospel through the mud. I think. Um, I know men and women who've got great reasons that they're going to vote for Donald Trump, and when I listen to them talk, I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to understand them. And then the same thing for, for President or Vice President Biden. Okay. And I'm trying to listen to that. And then I've got my own thoughts. But this fever pitch, it's always the most important election. And if you don't see it on my side, then you're anathema. That is so ungodly. That's exactly what Paul said we should never, ever do. He said, I mean, he says in, in I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, what, wouldn't you rather just be wrong? Like, why would you want to do all this fighting in public? Like, you're making the church look terrible. Why not just be wrong? And we've lost that, man. We, we lost it because we've begun to believe more in our political leaders than in our king. And uh, and when we do that, I think the only, the only person who wins is probably our enemy. And it's really sad. Mm. That is well said, and you've got some great stuff in the book uh, that people could and should read on that. We could probably sit here and talk about politics for the rest of the afternoon, but but I'd like to shift gears just a little bit because another chapter in the book that really stood out to me, uh, chapter five, I believe, 
on victory and suffering. Uh, you know, this, this day and age, when I listen to a lot of people preach, they preach it more like victory or suffering. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, the, uh, that, that's the, the dark side of what you're talking about there. And I would just love to hear your thoughts, obviously, for, for folks who haven't read the book yet and gave us a, a taste and a teaser of what kinds of things and what kinds of concepts you're wrestling with and the idea of Christians in their lives containing both victory and suffering. Yeah. Well, you know, in the Reformed tradition, uh, we've got a great theology of suffering. I think it's actually very robust. Um, and in the charismatic tradition, we have a great theology of victory. And um, But what happens, uh, I've noticed in both, is uh, for some in the Reformed world, uh, if you're walking in victory or you have you know, if you're prospering financially or you have like a nice home or good health or a nice car, you're like suspect. You're like, you know, it's like, then you're probably not doing it right. And so there's the, almost this uh, elevation of suffering, uh, like a poverty theology. And then, of course, the, the flip side, if you're, uh, you know, we can all think of the ridiculous, you know, coiffed haired charlatan on, you know, some Christian broadcasting channel or something that, uh, says, you know, if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. And I mean, I've, I've been told that before. And I mean, I, I've been at the, the bedside of people who've been sick, who've, you know, received counsel like that. And it's devastating too. And the reality is like, hey, well, what did Jesus walk in? What did Paul walk in? What did Peter walk in? What did pretty much every saint of the Old and New Testament walk in? A weird mix of both, man. Like a weird mix of both. Ultimate victory, like crazy ultimate victory. Yeah. So, I mean... Big, big fan of that, but the idea that it's always gonna, always only ever gonna be up and to the right, is. I mean, it should. It's so obviously false that I'm shocked that we fall for it. But we have such a desire to avoid pain and death that we want it to be true. So, do I believe in prosperity? Yeah, I mean, of course I do. God, God likes me. <laughs> um, like he likes you too. We're, we're his kids. He, if if I've repented and trust Jesus, I've got a ring on my finger of authority. I've got I've got the robe of righteousness around me, and he wants to throw a party for me. Like praise God, that's awesome. That's what he's like. Also, also on the road to righteousness, there might be some suffering. Paul got a thorn in his flesh, and it wasn't because God was mad at him. It's because God wanted to 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 make Paul see something wonderful about his grace. Um. So these things are, are going to be present in our lives. And we don't get to always pick how or when they come. And the idea that somehow prosperity is always to be su uh, suspect um, or that um, poverty is an evidence of a lack of faith is to be like, it's so obviously wrong that it makes me wonder if the people who propound such bad ideas have ever actually been introduced to a Bible. Like if they've ever read, if they've ever sat down and just like read a whole gospel at a sitting or read, like are vaguely aware of like the life of Paul or Peter or, or, or John, you know, the, like, and of, of course not. Like, of course it's going to be both. And so why would we expect any different? We shouldn't expect any different. Now by faith, even our worst sufferings get turned into victory. And so ultimately I, I believe that, you know, the, the end is going to be awesome. Like eternity is a long time and, and the new heavens and new earth are going to be amazing. But Jesus made a promise that doesn't make it on any bumper stickers and no one's got a cool tattooed on their you know, arm that in this life you will suffer, but take heart. Right. I've overcome the world. Oh. Like no one has that on their, on their bumper sticker, but it, it was a promise that Jesus made. So we should probably buckle up and be ready to bear up under it by faith. It's so good. And I think there's this idea that if we just, if we just, and this really connects a little bit to what we were just talking about, but of course you've got your, your theological disposition towards victory and suffering, and then you have your political disposition towards victory and suffering. And it's almost like a, this, this golden carrot mirage that there, there is a way to have a time come to pass where there won't be suffering. And, um, you know, it's 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 like just the the eternal dangling of the cookie in front of you. Just keep chasing this, and you'll have no more suffering. Yeah. Just think this way, and you'll have no more suffering. Just say these mantras, and you'll have no more suffering. Just vote this way, and you'll have no more suffering. And I'm with you. In fact, I you know I 
I posted just a couple weeks ago, let's not forget that in this world, we are guaranteed one thing, and that is suffering. <laughs> that is trouble. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I actually think that dangling, it, it, it's an echo of something. Because if you think about it, like there's no other species on the planet that does this, right? I mean, you don't, you don't see a, a cow going, whoa, 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 you know, <laughs> like, wait a minute. Uh, or some, you know, gazelle out in Africa, you know, shocked. And, and Why do we have this expectation that there should be a world in which there is no suffering? Because as C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then my best conclusion must be that I was made for another world. It's like there's this soul memory of an Eden we'd lost and a heaven that is before us. And in our fallenness, we, we want so much to create it with Babylon's bricks down here. And, and yet, if we would put those bricks down and trust in Jesus, then we would get two things that we cannot have without him. One is we would, we would even in our worst suffering, be able to have joy and, and happiness in Christ now. And we would walk into the greatest victory possible that no suffering could ever denude or take away, but only by looking toward him. And, and so I find when politicians are making these promises, I'm like, well, you know, yeah, there, there is a world coming when everyone has perfect health care and, you know, everyone's prospering and the, and the unemployment rate is zero. It's just not this one. Uh, so we should work for those things here, but with a suspicion toward those who promise them, because there's only one king who's going to bring heaven and you're not going to vote for him this November. Unfortunately, that's not an option. <laughs> no, no. Well, I'd love to uh, to move just one more time, and of course, we're just kind of talking through some pieces of your book, uh, which again is called "Stop Taking Sides," and you can get that on Amazon or probably, I imagine, anywhere that you get your books these days. Um, but the the final chapter is titled "I and We," and I, I thought it was it was quite moving. And I wonder if you could just give us a little synopsis of what you mean when you when you talk about the difference between "I" and "We." Yeah. Um, so I refers to this impulse in us uh, to, to think about ourselves, uh, the individualist, the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, the, the way I was raised, um, and, and probably the way I am, if you just sort of, you know, lead, lead me to my own devices. And then the we has to do with like the, the collective, a uh, collectivist, it's, it's much more about us sort of uh, Commander Spock at the end of uh, Star Trek 3? Maybe four. I can't remember. Um, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. I'll and, have to uh, take your word for it on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and and the reality is, no. And like, I matter, and we matter, and fundamentally, the way we know that is because that's how God is. God is in His nature, uh, individual and community. And these things are infinitely, eternally, perfectly fused in this wonderful uh, and confounding doctrine we have at the center of our theological house called the Trinity. It's, it's who God is. And, and, and that I-we tension sits honestly at the center of so many fights from the, the ones that you know, spouses have to uh, you know, when, when children you know, fight over a certain toy or time in front of, you know, a screen or something to do huge political battles you know, that we're seeing play out before our very eyes. Do I matter or do we matter and which matters more? And that tension can only be solved with love. Um, love. Because only if I'm so overwhelmed by the love of God that I am happy to lay my life down for others can I actually become fully myself and have what it takes to lay myself down for the sake of others? It's a strange and unexpected way to live um, because we are taught the exact opposite. Uh, to become yourself by looking into yourself and then you find a we to be a part of that's exactly like you. And it is, I mean, it's the same error that Satan made he looked upon himself as beautiful and fell like lightning from the heavens and got a bunch of you know spiritual beings to to fall with him and we in our in our attempts toward unity and even individual self-actualization we do it exactly like him i mean you know just listen to our songs or watch every one of the movies that disney has ever made or 
you know, uh, any, any sitcom or, or read any book. And it's like, you know, you just need to figure out you. And when you figure out you, everything else is going to be fine. And that's not quite right. <laughs> that's not quite right. Um, because when we look toward the father who's been lavishing love upon the son from eternity past and the son who's been pouring out love for the father and the spirit, they are fully themselves and the members of the Trinity are fully loved. And yet the love that they experience within themselves is the love cast upon them by the other members of the Trinitarian family. And it, it, this is the, this is called a doctrine called uh, perichoresis or mutual indwelling. And it's beautiful. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, now we're at the, I think the, the, the most beautiful and, and, uh, most difficult to see part of the magisteri, magisterial house of theology, which is the, the life of God himself. Um, and yet we're set, we're told that by faith in Christ, my life is now hidden with Christ in God. So that when Christ, who is your life appears, I will be, I will appear with him in glory. Therefore, set your mind on things above. Mm. Like Paul talks about our life being so in God that it's that he puts it in the the aorist tense, the, the past tense. You know that that's stunning. Uh, like that that's the way things are. So by thinking about God and by orienting ourselves toward God and, and considering who He is, we actually become who we are as individuals and a society. And and that's heady stuff, man. That's why I put the, that chapter at the end because uh, it's sort of the one that's like. Oh, Okay, um, and yet it, it, it's God who, for whom we were made, and um, and I think as we more and more think like this, we become more happy as individuals, uh, filled with the joy of God. I don't mean situationally happy; I mean uh, happy, as in the John Jonathan Edwards sense of happy. And then we can give our lives away for others happily, uh, regardless. So it, that's very much my hope. From, from the book that a few people might read it and, and start to orient themselves in that way and uh, less toward the side they find most preferable at the time. That is so good. Well, it is a wonderful book, and I, I went through it fairly quickly to prepare for my time with you today, but I'm looking forward to actually taking some time to go through it again. Uh, someone actually texted me. had no idea we were going to be talking today, but another Every Nation pastor, Peter Dusan, you may know him, Peter, sent, mm-hmm. sent me a text just today that he was digging into your book and was saying, man, we're going to have to read this together and talk about it. And so I said, well, I'm I'm one step ahead of you, and I'm going to talk to the author today, and then I'll circle back, and we will talk about it. But cool. I, I very much enjoyed the book, and uh, it's great to know that other people are. I really appreciate your your time to write it, to put some of the things that we all wrestle with, these tensions, you know, onto paper in a way that we can consider. And I definitely strongly recommend, uh, honestly, every Christian go out and get a copy of it and give it a read because I think I think that it will challenge you in some really specific and unique ways that maybe you're not being challenged because of the tendency of the human heart to go to those places where we alleviate the tension by only being around those who think the way we do, who desire the things that we do, and talk the way that we do. Um, so Adam, thank you so much for being with us today on Tuesdays or for talking. And I, I very much appreciate your time, very much appreciate all the effort, and we're very glad to have had you on. Thanks. Glad to be here. God bless. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Tuesdays Are For Talking. For more information about how to get and stay connected to us, head over to mosaicchurchaustin.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We hope you'll make plans to join us next week.